Well, happy Father's Day. As a father, one of my most serious responsibilities and the greatest privileges in my life is to teach my children and model godliness in my family. Part of that responsibility is discipline. Discipline is an interesting concept. It provides a more immediate, minor consequence with the interest of warding off a longer-term but more serious consequence. Hopefully that makes sense. So if I, what I'm trying to do with discipline in my family, especially in my children, is if I want to get a point across to them, I'll give them a smaller consequence in the interest that they don't face a bigger problem down the road. And God does that for us as well. I'm over 40 now, and so the statute of limitations is long since passed, but I got spanked as a child. Maybe you can identify. I grew up in a musical household, and so I learned at an early age that drumsticks are not only useful as a musical accessory, but also as an incredibly effective tool for fine-tuning attitude and behavior. Uh, Insider tip, they're much more durable than wooden spoons. So whether you got a drumstick or a wooden spoon or a belt or something else, all of us have received some form of discipline at some point in our lives. The psalm that we're going to be looking at today, Psalm chapter 30, is an account of some discipline that David received. So if you turn in your Bibles or grab a Bible out of the the pew in front of you, I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm chapter 30, and while you get there, I've got a few thoughts. Psalm 30 reads something like a memoir of David, almost as though he is remembering a specific time and situation of divine discipline in his life. If you found it there, you'll see the, the first line is it says, it's Psalm of David, a song at the de- dedication of the temple. Some translations will say a dedica- at the dedication of the house. And according to a couple of commentaries, there's reason to think that this psalm could have been written for the dedication of the tabernacle that David had set up for the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. You'll remember that when David became king of Israel, there was no temple yet, so he set up the tabernacle in Jerusalem, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. Maybe this psalm was written for the dedication of that, of that tabernacle. It could have possibly been written to dedicate or to commemorate the dedication of David's own personal house. But a third possibility, and one that makes the most sense to me, is that David wrote this psalm for the dedication of the site of the future temple as recorded in 1 Chronicles 21 and also 2 Samuel chapter 24. They're parallel passages. So we're not going to read those today, but I want to give you just a quick summary of 1 Chronicles 21 so that we have a bit of a background for this psalm. In 1 Chronicles 21, Israel is going, uh, things are going really well for Israel. And so Satan, the sworn enemy of Israel, rises up against Israel and moves David to number his fighting men or take a census of, figure out how many there are. So David pursues this census of his fighting men, 
And against the recommendation of some of his closest advisors, namely Joab, he goes ahead and makes them count up how many, how many fighting men he's got. And what we don't see is David's attitude in this. We find it later. But God is angry with David and gives him a choice of three punishments for David's pride in this. He gives him either three years of famine, three months of defeat before his enemies with a sword overtaking, or he gives David the option of three days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all Israel. Well, David immediately recognizes the peril of his options, and he throws himself at the mercy of God rather than at the mercy of his enemies. So God punishes David's pride with a plague on the entire nation that kills 70,000 people. The plague was stopped when, David, when God relented and stopped the destroying angel at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite, who lived just outside of Jerusalem at the time. David purchased that piece of ground and made an altar and sacrifice to the Lord there. And that is a very brief summary of 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24. And hopefully as we proceed through this Psalm chapter 30, you'll see the parallel that I'm drawing here. So now as we get into the Psalm, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. And David says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So the psalm starts out with David praising the Lord on account of God saving David from three hazards. Enemies in verse 1, sickness in verse 2, and also death in verse 3. And as we, if we were to look into David's life, we would see... Uh, a clear demonstration of how David's enemies were constantly trying to kill him. Think of Goliath or Saul or the Philistines as examples. There are more, but those are three that jump to mind. In verse 2, David says that God healed him. And we don't have a specific uh, personal sickness that David might have encountered, but it could have been the plagues that God brought upon Israel following David's misguided census of the nation. In verse 3, he says that God restored his life from among those that go down to the pit. Basically, it's saying that he saved David from death. And David was often in danger from death, from Saul. Saul made a couple of attempts on his life. The Philistines made an attempt at it. Rival armies made an attempt. And you can read a lot more about that in the count of David's life in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. In response to, to the Lord's action on David's life, in verse 4, David breaks out in praise and calls the saints to praise as well. He says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. That is a constant theme throughout David's life not just through the Psalms, but also through all of the Scripture. Think of King David in 2 Samuel 22, verse 50. He says, For this I praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. We won't turn there, but 1 Chronicles 16, verses 8 to 36, 
David gives a song of thanks when the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Another song of thanks and praise is found in Nehemiah chapter 12 at the dedication of the new walls in Jerusalem after the return of the captives from Babylon. And if we look in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18, Paul tells the Thessalonians to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As we get to verse 5, I want to spend a little bit of time here and study this because this is a pivotal verse in this psalm. It says, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It kind of divides into two, two lines there, the first, or two pas- passages. The first two lines and then the second two lines, they, they have some really neat cross-references I'd like you to draw your attention to. Isaiah 54, verses 7 and 8. God is talking to the children of Israel, and He says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6 also talk about this. God's speaking in the Ten Commandments, and He talks about referring to their worship of idols, and He says, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, in Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This might seem unjust if we think that God is punishing children and grandchildren for the sins of those who came before them. But consider the other side of the argument. Certainly there are long-term consequences for those who reject God's laws, but look at the blessings for those who obey. David's thoughts in Psalm 30 verse 5 certainly ring true, that the Lord's anger is for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. The emphasis here is in the contrast. While God's justice must be satisfied, our God loves to show mercy. In the second part of verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning, I'd like to draw your attention to a parallel in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 and 24. It says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I want to stop there for just a second. If you Reading your Bibles, you'll know that Jeremiah, the prophet, is the one that wrote the book of Lamentations. And in his experience and in his prophetic ministry, he happened to get the, the dubious privilege, shall we say, of witnessing to the people of Israel in their, in their last days, sort of before the captivity. And he got to experience the destruction of Jerusalem. So as you read through the book of Lamentations, and especially this part, picture the prophet of Jeremiah walking through the burned out streets of Jerusalem, thinking about maybe the neighbors that he knew there, 
or the buildings that would have been there at some point, and now they're piles of ash and rubble. So, in that context, let's think about this here in Lamentations chapter 3. It says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. And picture that as you think of the devastation and demoralization that Jeremiah would have faced as he walked through Jerusalem. A lot of popular so-called Christian teachers and preachers take the promises that God has made to Israel and apply them directly to the church. We need to be really careful when we do that because it's a little bit like reading somebody else's mail. There are cases, however, where there are New Testament parallels to the Old Testament promises, and this is one here, where weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. If you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 16, verses 20 to 22, Jesus is speaking to His disciples near the end of His ministry, and He says in John chapter 16, 21 to 22, truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Also, Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18, Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means that they're going away. They're not going to last very long. But the things that are unseen are eternal. All of these passages clearly outline that First, we can expect trouble and difficulty, but also that they promise an eternal joy once the temporary struggles of this life are over. For the believer, our mourning comes in heaven. Joy is going to come. The only condition for this promise is that we have confessed our sins to God and believed Jesus' death for our sins and subsequent resurrection. If you haven't believed, friend, then any struggle you have here on earth is only a small fraction of the trouble you can certainly expect when you stand before God at the last judgment. You and I need to remember that God is still in control when we are in the middle of a difficult or discouraging time. The hope that we as believers have and look forward to is not a conditional desire, as in, I hope it will rain tomorrow, or I hope the fires don't get too close, or I hope 
that the rain comes for the crops. But it is a confident assurance that what God has promised, He is also able to perform. As we look back at Psalm chapter 30, verse 6, it starts a reflective passage in this psalm. It says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. And it's David's reflection on his over-self-confidence. Too often we forget God, too often we forget God when we find ourselves in a comfortable circumstance. This is called pride, and it's one of the gods in our culture today. The problem with pride is that it is so subtle that you and I can suppress it for a while and maintain a measure of humility, then become proud of how humble we are being. Maybe you all have mastered that, but I struggle with it constantly. It's so easy for us to put the focus on ourselves like David did here, especially in our culture of self-fulfillment. So we live in a culture of self-worship. You've probably seen that, or pride, and we see it most clearly this month of June of all things, when those who would openly reject God's clear commands, especially regarding marriage and human sexuality, celebrate their rebellion by calling this Pride Month. God's judgment on Western civilization is coming, friends. Part of that judgment is giving people over to foolishness and irrational thought when they continue to reject His commands. We live in a culture of people who have openly scorned what God has said, and they are proud of it. God warned against this proud, self-sufficient attitude in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. We're not going to turn there, but I'll give you a few more passages to uh, support the point. So Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 to 20. Also in Deuteronomy 32, 15. 2 Chronicles 32, 25. Jeremiah 22, verse 21. And Daniel 4, verses 8 to 37. I want to draw your attention to that last one just for a minute. That is the example of King Nebuchadnezzar as he was walking around on the flat roof of his palace, looking over the city of Babylon, with its beautiful architecture and the hanging gardens. And he said, Look, isn't this the great city that I have built for my glory and the splendor of my majesty? That's not word for word, but that'll give you a pretty good idea of what he was thinking. And that proud attitude was so offensive to God that God intervened and gave him the mind of an animal for seven years. So you remember that he was driven from civilization, he lived in the field, ate grass, and his hair and his fingernails grew long so that it looked like the, the feathers of a bird and the talons of, a, of an eagle. God restored him, but only after, he rec- after King Nebuchadnezzar recognized that God was in control, that he was not, and recognized the folly of his pride. We see more warnings against pride pride in the New Testament as well, such as James 4, verses 6 to 10, where God says, or where James says that He, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 5-6 says something similar in a call to humility and finishes with, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. 1 Corinthians 4, to se- 4 verse 7, Paul is talking to the, first Corinthian, to the Corinthians in his first letter that we have, and he says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So work with me on a, an illustra- illustration here for just a moment. If you put your Bible down and take a deep breath, and hold it for about three seconds and let it out. Then take the palm of your hand, or take one hand, whichever is preferable, and take two fingers from the other hand, put it just below the bone at the base of your thumb. Try this. See if you can feel your blood pressure there. Or if that's too difficult, put it just beside your windpipe under your chin. Every one of those breaths, every one of those heartbeats is by the grace of God. Holding and maintaining the essential function of your physical body so that you can live. You can't change your heartbeat to start or stop it and still stay alive. You can't will to stop your breathing and still stay alive. God is the one who graciously allows each one of us to live and experience the events in our lives. That is Paul's emphasis in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. What do you have that you didn't receive? Right? The most basic functions of our human body are granted to us by God. How much more everything else that we experience? And that's what David's acknowledging here in the next verse, in Psalm 30, verse 7. He says, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. That's such a contrast to verse 6, isn't it? David acknowledges that it's God's favor and grace that strengthens him rather than his own. You remember he said in verse 6, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. That's a lot of I, me, and my in a verse. And then he looks looks at his situation. He says, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. He recognized that also in Psalm 46 where he said, God is our refuge and strength. Psalm 59, verse 16, David sings of the Lord's strength. And Psalm 62, verses 5 to 8 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. As in, we don't put a lot of effort into this. My fortress that I should not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 16, verse 19a, says, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. The second half 
of verse 17 is really interesting. David says that God hid his face. You hide your face. I was dismayed. And it's not as though David could actually see the face of God, but he's using poetic language here to describe how he felt when he was living in his own strength and thinking that he could handle life on his own. When we feel like we're successful, we often think that we are the ones responsible for our own success. I do anyways. Now, God does not remove His Holy Spirit from us who have turned to Him in repentance and faith to save us from our sins, but He does allow us to encounter the consequences of our own actions when we persist in our own pride. This can make us feel that God has hidden His face from us or that He's abandoned us or that the intimate relationship that we should be experiencing with Him is broken or missing. And David recognized this truth here in the second half of verse 7. In verses 8 through 10, David turns to the Lord with the argument that if the Lord does not intervene in David's distress, then he is likely to die and be unable to praise the Lord or teach others about his faithful character. He says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 for a minute. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Isn't this what, just what David prayed? Be merciful to me. Be my helper. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may obtain sorry, may receive mercy and find grace to help of need, in time of need. The beautiful truth about our faithful God is that in this verse, God has promised to be our helper. Consider some of these other verses in Isaiah 41, verse 10. God is speaking to the children of Israel and He says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Remember our passage, uh, the comparison I drew a few minutes ago about parallels from the Old Testament promises to the New Testament promises. Jesus speaks to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 7, and he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. The disciples weren't convinced of this at this point. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, quoting from the Psalms in Psalm 118 says, keep your free life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, that is God, I will never leave you more, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So when David is praying, O Lord, be my helper, and we come to that conclusion often in our lives, what are we remembering? 
God has promised to be our helper. How often do we ask God for help or wisdom and not really believe that, he, that we are actually asking the creator and sustainer of the universe for help? We need to be thinking of the circumstances in that Jeremiah recorded in Jeremiah 32 verse 27 when he, in his ministry, the Lord gave him this message. He said, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? In verses 11 and 12 of Psalm chapter 30, David's previous despair is replaced with joy. Remember how he said earlier that joy comes with the morning? David has reached his morning by the time 11 and 12 come. You have turned for me my morning, that's his weeping and crying, not 6 a.m. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, I will give thanks to you forever. In the culture of the day, when David was living, people would demonstrate their emotions much more dramatically than we do in our North American culture. Grief was demonstrated openly with loud crying, tearing of garments, and often wearing garments of very coarsely woven fabric called sackcloth. Think of the gunny sacks that we get corn in in the summertime, and then think of wearing that next to your body. That alone would make you cry. Joy, on the other hand, was demonstrated with singing, with dancing, with music, and feasting. And David is reflecting on his experience with God's faithfulness and help in his time of need. The realization of God's provision in David's life gave him great joy and thus gave him reason for continuous outpouring of praise and thanksgiving. So now that we have a context, and I've, we've kind of gone through the psalm in sections, I want to read it through. And as I read, maybe you can uh, see the context of this in a little bit clearer way. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up, brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I give, will give thanks to you forever. Friend, this is a good time to reflect. Certainly I have little idea of what's going on in your life and I have no special insight to tell you what you need to do. Maybe your life is going amazing. Praise the Lord for that. 
Are you remembering to be grateful and thankful for the success that God has granted to you? Maybe that's not the case, though. Maybe you're encountering hard times in your life. I'm not going to pretend to be like Job's three friends and claim that God is punishing you from some secret, un secret hidden sin. If that's the case, can I exhort you with all the urgency in the world to be reconciled to God? But maybe God is testing your faith to prove the genuineness of your faith so that when you have come through the test, you can reflect Christ better and so that you can better thank and praise God, our great God who is our gracious helper even when we are facing difficulties or the discipline of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are your children. You've called us to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Way too often, O oh Lord, we fall short of the mark. We go our own way, and we need your discipline in our lives to bring us back to a right relationship with you like David did in our passage today. Holy Spirit, make us sensitive to your prompting and quick to repent. Give us the strength and the will to be tender and obedient to your will, O oh Lord. And as David prayed, hear and be gracious and be our helper. Make us a people who love to be thankful and love to worship you. Help us to desire you and to, be, to reflect you well to a world that wishes to have nothing to do with you. Give us your strength to do that, Lord Jesus, and may we give you the glory, for you are the one that deserves all the praise. We thank you for your grace and your patience with us. In Jesus' name, amen.